precious Lord, you are the one who was dead but now lives forevermore. And you will live to see the fruits of your great salvation faithfully and fully applied to every one of your redeemed. Your priesthood is forever. Your intercession unceasing. We behold you, Lord, by faith. Even now you stand with the blood of the covenant in your hand. And you present us, poor, wretched, worthless us, as those who were purchased by your blood. We hear your voice in these soul-reviving words, Holy Father, keep them in your name whom you have given me, that they might be one even as we are. O glorious, gracious, almighty high priest, you are indeed a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Precious Jesus, you are more and more precious as our soul longs for you more and more. Help us to see that everything in us and from us is but dung and dross but accept both us and our poor offerings and let both be sweetly sanctified and perfumed with the incense of your blood and righteousness. Lord, may you be our whole and soul perfection for righteousness here below and may we be found perfect in Christ Jesus in a life of grace that we may everlastingly enjoy you in a life of glory hereafter. We ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. So this morning we're going to continue our study in 1 Peter. And this morning we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. On first read, this might not sound like an Easter passage. But church, this is a passage that is all about the resurrection. This is a passage that reflects the hinge point that comes at the resurrection. So here is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Church, when Jesus rose from the dead, everything changed. As we already talked about today, the most important and most understood change has to do with salvation. We can never underestimate the significance of the risen Christ with respect to the redemption of sinners. If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But as important as the resurrection is and the resurrection power is for the spiritual change in you and in me, if we know Christ, if we repent and if we believe, as important as that change from death to life is, we can't lose sight of the fact that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything changed. When the Son of God conquered the grave, the world, as we said, came to a hinge point. The way that things were gave way to the way things are. The old things were passing away, and the new things were coming into view. Old wineskins were bursting with a new wine that was pouring out for the world to drink freely of. Because there is now a new covenant cut by the blood of Christ, the risen and now glorified Christ Not only are the sins of those within the covenant paid for, but the freedom found in that grace is liberating. 
The devil has been defeated. The first fruits of the resurrection are before us. And the spirit-filled life is ours to live for the glory of the resurrected Christ. So with these spectacular truths in our hearts and in our minds, we celebrate the festival of the resurrection on this Sunday and on every Sunday. But it's a celebration that shouldn't just stop with pastel clothes and pretty flowers and sentiments about what happened 2,000 years ago. It's a celebration not to equip and empower and encourage us for on this Sunday and all Sundays and every day in between. It's a celebration that equips and empowers and encourages us even in the most difficult days. Indeed, even in the most difficult seasons of life. So this historical and this redemptive hinge point, this changing of all things, was part of Jesus' gospel of the coming of the kingdom of God. The historical and the redemptive hinge was part of the apostolic foundation for the church, the very church that we are a part of. And so Peter, in his first epistle, the epistle that we've been studying for months now, refers to this historical and redemptive hinge as he speaks to equip and empower and encourage his audience. And as you recall, his audience, a first century church made up of redeemed sinners like you and me, living in a fallen world like you and like me, he called elect exiles. He said they were grieved by various trials, even to the point where they might suffer for righteousness' sake, like you and like me. And so he writes in chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. How is the imminence of the end of all things an encouragement? Once again, it requires us to understand what happened at the resurrection. In light of Christ rising from the dead, what is the biblical concept of the end? Unfortunately, most evangelicals' conception of the end is characterized by doom and gloom. For many in the American church, it's more often informed by the rantings of sandwich board-clad street corner prophets and fictionalized Christian novel series than by Scripture. Now, while there is an ultimate end to history that is drawing near, the Bible speaks of the time after Christ's resurrection as the end. We are living in the end. The apostles were living in the end. In Hebrews chapter 9, speaking of Christ, it says that he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has appeared at the end. Past tense. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, referencing the Old Testament, Paul writes that they were written down, the scriptures were written down, for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The Old Testament was given to us because we are living at the end of the ages. The apostles, these inspired writers of scriptures, were not mistaken in referring to these latter days as the end. God did not mislead his people now or in the first century when he did not return immediately. The end is more about fulfillment. The end is more about completion. The end is about the substance. 
the shadows of the law and the nation of Israel in ceremony have been fulfilled in the end in Christ. The end is more of a qualitative issue than it is a quantitative issue. It's not so much a chronology as it is a completion point, as it is things coming to their fullness. And Jesus' resurrection, it is written in 1 Corinthians, as we'll talk about here more in a moment, his resurrection puts a divine stamp of approval on everything that was we were waiting for in the former days, everything that the saints of the Old Testament were anticipating, everything that those people around Jesus in his life, at, even at the time of his resurrection, were waiting for. Jesus' resurrection puts a stamp of approval that we have moved from a former epoch into a current time. Perhaps it's coming to focus now how Peter's words, the end of all things is at hand, might equip empower, and encourage a suffering church. But perhaps we're still asking, how does this relate to the resurrection? Let's look at how the first half of this verse, and then briefly, the application that Peter gives in the second half of the verse, touches on the resurrection and the new reality that we live in, in light of Christ rising from the dead. So there's many remarkable implications of the resurrection. Many things that the, things that the resurrection, Scripture teaches, triggers regarding the end of all things, the latter days, the fullness of time. I want to point out three clear theological truths that we know occurred because of the resurrection this morning. First, the devil has been defeated. Second, the first fruits of the resurrection are before us. And third, the spirit-filled life is ours to live to the glory of the resurrected Jesus Christ. So, sometimes handcuffs are not enough. Criminals, when apprehended, are often put in handcuffs. And these restraints, more often than not, are sufficient. Once their arms and their hands are behind their back at an awkward angle, many offenders submit to their captors. However, this isn't always the case. Sometimes... Even when their arms and their, le- and their, and their hands, the, the, the primary means by which we interact with the world, have been incapacitated, a detained person can still lash out. They can kick with their legs. They can headbutt. They can spit. They can gnash their teeth. They have been arrested, but they can still do damage. They've been defeated in a sense, but they still need additional moments of defeat. The same is true of the devil. Scripture is clear, church. Satan has been defeated by Jesus. There is still another final victory coming. But he has triumphed over the devil multiple times. Jesus defeated the devil when he resisted him in the wilderness. Jesus himself acknowledges, immediately preceding some of the first exorcisms that are recorded in the Gospels, that in order to plunder the strong man's house, the strong man, Satan, must first be bound. The cross, too, is a moment where the devil is defeated. We even sung of that this morning. Hear the words of Hebrews chapter 2. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise took in the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, 
that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Scripture is clear. Again, we know that the final defeat of Satan is coming in the future, but it says here in the plain words that we find in the epistle of the Hebrews, through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The risen Christ used death not so that he would stay dead along with the defeat of the devil. The risen Christ used death to conquer the one who relishes in death. The risen Christ used death, the very weapon that Satan used to mar image bearers of God, you and me, to vanquish him and free those who were in slavery to him. And that slavery, that slavery to sin, that slavery to death, that slavery to Satan is something that everyone in the world knows because every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve was born into that pitiful state of bondage. Furthermore, every one of us at one point in our life willingly thumbed our nose at the one who would save us. There is no shade of gray, spiritually speaking. It is only black or white. Christ himself says it is only slaves of Satan or slaves of Christ. And so this morning, it's an important reality check. Who do you serve? Who is your master? Who is your Lord? Whose house do you serve? Whose business are you about? Whose name is on your forehead? It is only one or the other. There are no blanks. If it is Jesus Christ, we know that we belong to him because of the resurrection. Our shackles and our fealty to, the, to Satan was unwavering, but by his grace, through the resurrection, our former dark master was capped down, was bound and defeated, and by his grace, by his resurrection power, we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. The nations are no longer deceived, and we are evidence of that. I don't know everyone's parentage. I don't know everyone's genealogy but I'm relatively confident that in New Hampshire in the 21st century, that we, in some small way, compared to Palestine in the first century, represent a, a church made up of tribes and tongues and nations spanning the globe as evidence of the victory achieved at the resurrection. Yet, of course, like an insane cuffed criminal, the devil still flails about and causes untold damage. But he does this, church, because he knows his time is short. Satan, like a prisoner in the back of a squad car, might kick out the windows of your life and even spit at your face, but we must trust the word of the Lord and the power of the resurrected Christ. The evil one has been defeated. His suffering is set. Our suffering is short. His suffering will only lead to more eternal suffering if we are in Christ our suffering has a point at which it will end and all of that will be vindicated. What strong truths to equip us. What a bold report of what happened on the front on that day to empower us. What an encouragement to us, even in the midst of suffering and trial and temptation, that Satan's defeat is sure. 
And so the end of all things, church, in part, is the ending of the devil and an impending march to his ultimate defeat. The devil has been defeated. And second, the first fruits of the resurrection are before us. What are first fruits? This is oftentimes one of those churchy phrases that we don't use outside of this context. They are, quite literally, the first fruits. The first apple of the harvest. The first full-sized ear of sweet corn in the field. And of course, the agrarian culture that Scripture often dealt with in its original audience understood first fruits. That first vegetable, that first piece of fruit, even that first uh, small animal in the springtime, it symbolized a yield. There was now a fruit or a vegetable or an animal in hand but it also symbolized that there was more to come. An entire harvest was on the way, and this first fruit is proof of it. Of course, one single apple, one solitary ear of corn, one lone zucchini, and I know there's never just one lone zucchini, it would not be a cause for celebration. But each of these instances, the first fruit represents an orchard, an entire field, an entire garden bed, will soon be heavy with food from the harvest. The first fruit is not something that is simply held up as a trophy. It is something that is held up as a hope-filled proof of concept. Christ's resurrection, Scripture tells us, is a first fruits of the end of all things. His resurrection is the proof that the end of all things is at hand. Christ is raised, and we know that we will be raised. If Christ has everlasting life, and he says that we can have everlasting life, then we can have confidence that we can have everlasting life. He is the firstfruits of the harvest, and we will one day be gathered by him and like him and to him. In 1 Corinthians, we read it a bit this morning, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and that has his coming those who belong to Christ. Christ's resurrection changes everything, church. The hope of the resurrection, something that those around Jesus squabbled about like anyone today in any church or in any seminary squabbles about theological issues today, they were fighting about, is the resurrection going to happen? And then Christ rose from the dead. The hope of a resurrection has now been proven. On that Sunday morning, the empty tomb in the garden verified and completed a gospel that had been preached since Adam was exiled from another garden. We now live in a world where people come back from the dead. Not to die again, but to live forever. Notice in the previous age, people came back from the dead. Elijah brought someone back from the dead. Christ himself brought people back from the dead. But those people, they died again. Christ did not die again. And we have that promise. We now live in a world... 
We now live in an age, we now live at the end, a time where fallen, corrupt, and perishable is redeemed to a glory that transcends its original state. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to the pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Christ has been clothed with immortality. Christ in his glorified body that he received after the resurrection has been clothed imperishable. It's changed everything. Everything changed because of the hinge point that was the resurrection. The slain Christ is raised. We in Christ will be raised as well. Creation itself, as we read from Colossians 1 this morning, as our catechism question pointed out, creation will be restored. A new heavens and a new earth. What is groaning now, what is calling out for the redemption of the, of the saints of God, will soon sing praises to the living and redeemed Lord. So equipped with this knowledge of Christ as the first fruits, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. Empowered with this knowledge of Christ as the first fruits, we share the good news of the first one who was raised from the dead with those with an imperishable body, saying that this is the way in which they can be raised from the dead. Encouraged by this knowledge, Christ as the first fruits, we live obedient lives today, in a difficult today, knowing that there is promise of a glorious tomorrow with him. The end of all things mean the devil has been defeated, that we can live with the first fruits of the resurrection that have been set before us in Christ, and thirdly, that the spirit-filled life is ours to live for the glory of the resurrected Christ. The victory over Jesus Excuse me, the victory of Jesus over Satan is amazing, church. Following Jesus' pattern of resurrection, knowing that we will be resurrected too, is astonishing. And both are brilliant truths that are big, reality-altering pictures of how the world changed because of the resurrection. They are both things that characterize the new reality that has dawned because of the risen Christ. But we can't lose sight of the fact that every moment, if we are in Christ, if we are identified by him and with him, that every moment that we live is characterized by something characteristic of the end of all things, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have been indwelt and filled by the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of Christ lives in you, then, and Jesus lives at the right hand of the Father, he sent his Spirit to live in everyone who repents and believes. The presence of the Spirit in the life of the Christian, and consequently in the life of the church, is therefore normal. It's a normal thing about the time that we live in. Now that should never mean that his presence, the Spirit's presence, is mundane, that it's unremarkable, that it's taken for granted. May it never be. But just like fish swim, probably without knowing that they're wet, we experience the benefits of the Holy Spirit consistently and constantly in every step we take, in every breath we breathe, in everything that we do, because that is the life that we live in light of the resurrected Christ. Once we have been justified by God, 
We have his presence. We have his gifting. We have his assurance. We have his name written on our foreheads. And this existence, this extraordinarily normal life of the Christian is directly tied to the resurrected and glorified Jesus Christ. You're probably familiar with Peter's sermon at Pentecost when the Spirit was given to the apostles, tongues of flame, and they preached to all those who were, who were there in Jerusalem. And Peter quotes the prophet Joel saying, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Here, a fine point is put on the fact that the end of all things is at hand. Peter Decades before he, he, is, he, he penned the epistle that we're studying right now, but still filled with and inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that Joel in the Old Testament was looking to the day Peter was preaching after the resurrection and calling those times the last days. Again, we can't live in a conception that the last days are those final moments preceding you know, trumpets playing and, and everything changing. We are in the last days. Scripture is clear on this. And these last days, really, again, are contrasted with former days. In former days, the Spirit came on particular people for certain purposes. In the latter days, the time characterized by Pentecost all the way up to today and what will continue until Christ returns, the Spirit, as it says here in Acts chapter 2, quoting Joel, the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. The hinge point of this the hinge point from which the Spirit was given sparingly and the Spirit is giving liberally is the resurrection. It's the time when all change. The Spirit allows us to pray. The Spirit allows us to understand Scripture. The Spirit allows us to enjoy the sweet fellowship we so often enjoy with each other. The Spirit allows us to serve God. The Spirit allows us to worship the resurrected Christ in truth. And make no mistake about it, without the Spirit, none of these things are possible. You can go through the motions, you can sound like everyone else, you might even feel something. But just as you cannot resurrect yourself, you cannot please God without His Spirit in you. And the Spirit is a resurrection spirit. Not just a resurrection spirit for the coming resurrection of all the dead saints that will happen at the culmination of all things but a resurrection spirit for righteousness and life today. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul to the Romans. He wrote this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. The body may be dead, but the Spirit is life in you because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Church, you've already experienced a regeneration a resurrection, as Paul talks about here. You've already tasted of what is to come. It is a partial regeneration. And so although we still have the frailty of our mortal bodies, our spirits have been raised incorruptible, imperishable. And as he says there, you are no longer characterized by that fallen, broken, sinful, 
flesh, the lusts that wage war against us, that is not who we are. Who we are is, the, is characterized by the spirit of the resurrected Christ. The same spirit used by the Father to bring Christ back from the dead has brought our souls, if we are in Christ, from death and from suffering. We can't overstate that this spirit life, this spirit age of the church is what we are living in because of the resurrection of Christ. Christ is in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The life that you live now is eternal. Not will be eternal, is eternal because of the spirit of the resurrected Christ. God equips us with all that we need for faith in practice through his spirit. God empowers us with his life-giving spirit, and God encourages us with his presence through his spirit. Jesus is raised from the dead, and the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives within you. So church, we know the devil has been defeated because of the resurrection. We know that the first fruit of the resurrection are before us. We know the spirit-filled life is ours to live now to the glory of the resurrected Christ. Each one of these truths equips, empowers, and encourages us. Each one of these things is how God desired to equip, empower, and encourage a suffering church in the first century. And it's how God still desires to minister to you today. So what do we do with this divine ministry? How do we then live with at the end of all things at hand? Briefly, we'll look at how Peter kind of makes application in the last few minutes. Peter continues, Therefore, therefore, in light of the fact that at the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Knowing that the end of all things is at hand, that we're now living in the latter days, we're living in the second major portion of redemptive history, we are called to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Notice here, and you actually look everywhere else in the Bible, you can take my word for this, the end is not a time to panic. The end is not a time to run around like a chicken with its head cut off. It is a time to be self-controlled. We are to be sane. Your, your translation might even say to act sensibly. This is how we ought to act, knowing that we are at the end. And also, the end is not a time to lose hope or feel like there's no one in control. It is, as Peter writes, a time to be sober-minded. We are to be disciplined, to act according to the influence of the, of the, the Spirit and the words of Scripture. These are the two things that Peter gives through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to his church. The end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Jesus himself cautions against a life characterized by a lack of discipline and a lack of sense, a lack of being sober-minded and a lack of being self-controlled. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. 
Here Christ commands. Here Peter reinforces that we pray in the Spirit in a self-controlled and sober-minded way. If we pray in panic or we pray without control, we are praying contrary to that Spirit who breeds a life of self-control and sober-mindedness in us. Now this does not mean that every Christian will be perfectly sensible or flawlessly hopeful at all times. But it does mean that we live a life characterized by devotion, by worship, by fellowship in light of the age that we live in, an age where Satan has been defeated, an age where we have the first fruits of the resurrection before us, and an age where we have the spirit of the resurrected Christ living within us. And day by day, through prayer, through growing in, in being self-controlled, through growing in being sober-minded, we conform more and more to the image of Christ, the one who in his life and in his resurrected, glorified state is perfectly self-controlled, is perfectly sober-minded. Our minds are renewed. We feast on the meat of the word of God. We are nourished by the Lord's Supper. And we serve as faithful ambassadors of God's come and coming kingdom together. The moments when we don't have self-control and the moments when we are not sober-minded decrease as our reliance upon God and His grace and His Spirit increase. But church, this is only true if we know something of God's grace. Yet, you might not know God's grace. In fact... The end of all things might make you want to panic. You might feel like you have no hope or you don't know who's in control. Whatever your particular situation is, the solution is consistent. Know Jesus. Know the very one who is hope. Know the very one who is in control. Know the very one who saves those who are panicking and moreover, those who are perishing. Jesus warned that the day of judgment is coming and that it's coming suddenly like a trap. Where is the escape? Where is the comfort? Where is the confidence? The world has no answers. For the last 2,000 years, it has had no fulfilling answers. The answers have been like a wheel that have been spun throughout the centuries, continually landing on things that always fall short as the years go by, the world and our culture's attempts to find meaning and fulfillment continue to come up empty. You must acknowledge, if you do not know Christ, either quickly on the forefront of your mind or upon deep introspection, that you don't have answers yourself. I know this is true because I don't have answers. None of us have answers. Our attempts... Our, our attempts on our own to find meaning and fulfillment are sorely lacking. The only answers are held fast in the pierced hands of the resurrected Jesus. If death worries you, know that he conquered death. If the problem of evil nags at you, know that he defeated the devil. If the weight of mortality is thundering down on you in an intense level such that you are paralyzed, know that he has been raised from the dead as the first of many. Repent. Turn from your sin. Believe. Put your confidence in Christ. Place your trust in the one 
whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether and on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. We cannot find peace by ourselves. That his resurrection was the hinge point on which peace could be found. So turn to him. He died a death that you deserve, that I deserved. He took the wrath that you deserve, the wrath that we all deserve. We are graciously invited by the spirit of the resurrected Christ to simply repent and believe. Don't wait, because there is no chance at the end, or we are already at the end. But if you are already in Christ, church, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Remember that this world is fading away and that the new world of the resurrected Christ and his kingdom is dawning more and more each day. Surer than the sun shining now in the east, his dominion is on the horizon. We shape our life and we shape our prayers in light of this bedrock certain truth. We have everything we need in his word, in his church, and with his spirit to live self-controlled lives. We have everything that we have and everything that we need in His Word, in His church, in His Spirit to live sober-minded lives. This age is the age of the resurrected body of Christ, His church. There is suffering. We don't make any mistake about that. We don't gloss over that. We don't sugarcoat that. There are sufferings. There are trials. But they are passing away. Do not fear. Cast your cares upon him. Do not worry. See how he provides for you. Do not be filled with and fill yourself with those things that are unfulfilling. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because of the resurrection of Christ, history has shifted at a hinge point into a glorious new epoch. By grace, we have been equipped. We have been empowered we have been encouraged by the covenant God of all history, the God we can call our covenant God because of the resurrected Christ. And for you, for us, for this church and all those that are in him, in the resurrected Christ, the end of all things is nothing to fear. Because the end of all things, which is at hand because of the resurrected Christ, is the beginning of eternity. So, church, we look towards eternity when we partake of the Lord's Supper. This communion, a means of grace, not a grace that leads to salvation, a grace that by faith nourishes us and assures us of our salvation, allows us to look back, as we did on Friday night, to the suffering of Christ. But we live in this age, we live in this day, we live in this epoch, in this time, in the end of times, where we can look back on why Christ's hands were pierced, on why Christ's body was bruised. For the salvation of his people, for the renewing of all things. And with that in mind, this supper, simple crackers, simple wine, were ordained for our benefit. And we look towards eternity 
when we will one day share this meal in certainly a more grand and fulfilling way than a small bit of unleavened bread and a little bit of fermented juice. We will share that meal with the resurrected Christ face to face. So if you know Jesus, if you have repented, if you have put your faith in him, have been baptized into his death, then this supper is for you. We come to it excitedly. We come to this with hope. We come to this with joy. We come to this now in the light of the resurrection, knowing that this has been given to us until we eat it once more. But if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, it's he, it's his word that asks you to not take the bread and not take the wine. But the same word that fences and bars the table from those who do not know him also invites them to know him so that the benefits of this supper and all of the benefits that are intrinsic to knowing the Spirit and having him in their life can be yours and be yours abundantly. And so John will come up and lead us in a song. The elders will come up and, and administer the elements and come up during this song, this wonderful song reminding us of how because of the resurrection, Christ takes prominence and preeminence and ultimate standing in our life. And then we'll gather back to receive Lord's Supper together.